Top of the morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 today. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you want to get it open, uh, while you're doing that, I just want to say uh, there are some great, great things uh, going on in our church. We just sent six of our juniors in high school uh, to a, a leadership camp up at Pepperdine University. We dropped them off. They're going there training themselves to learn how to be more uh, effective leaders here in the kingdom of God and kind of find their, their spot in things. Uh, if you happen to take a trip down to the corner of Juniper and Grand, you will notice uh, that our marching and shouting work. There is no building left on the corner. Uh, so, uh, yes, God is good, uh, and we are very much underway. You're going to get one of these guys this week in the mail. Uh, this has a, uh, and if you, if you aren't signed up or you, you'd like to get this, uh, we just need your information. So fill out one of the cards. Uh, that'll be mentioned to you later. Go on the, uh, the app uh, and let us know where your address is. But inside, this has kind of a full uh, you know, set of information on everything from what's going to be in there, uh, in the grant, to how it's being paid for, to all those kinds of things. So be on the lookout for this little flashy number as we get going. Uh, God's doing some great things in our church, and it's kind of fortuitous or lucky or part of God's timing, I guess, for us to um, end up with this particular story from the book of Joshua today. Because despite all the victories that the people of God have won, that God has won for them, I should say. Today they're going to experience the agony of defeat. If you don't remember the ABC Wide World of Sports intro when I was a kid, it was amazing. The voiceover guy would get on there and he would say, I don't even remember what the first part was, I just remember and the agony of defeat. And he would say that and then a guy on a ski jump would bite it slide all the way down the jump, off the jump, like upside down, hurling through the air, hit a log cabin or something, and fall on the ground. I mean, you just watched it. I, I, I couldn't stop watching it. It was the highlight of the week was just watching that. And in my mind, I can picture that so clearly. You know, the, the, the Israelites are, are that guy today, okay? They, they can't handle success. And so they experience the agony of defeat. The success that they had, the hubris born of success, as business author Jim Collins would put it, begins to take over. Not so much in Joshua, but in the people under his leadership. Joshua doesn't seem to know what's going on. He just knows that they're getting their tail kicked and it, there's no real explanation for it. They just won Jericho. Much bigger battle, much scarier battle. Now they go to a little town called Ai, and everybody gets very sure of themselves. But somebody... You may remember last week, decided that they couldn't just take what they found and put it in the Lord's treasury, as he asked them to do. He wanted to hang on to a little bit for himself. He wanted to make sure that all of it wasn't given away. After all, he fought hard in the battle, right? He deserves a little bit of the spoils. His name's Achan. They aren't sure exactly what that translates to and what the Hebrew really is. Most people think it means serpent in Hebrew. Seems apropos. Uh, but if you don't get anything else today, one of the things I do hope you get is that we are far more connected to each other than we often think we are. Uh, we're good Americans, many of us are at least, and uh, we, we tend to view things in very individualistic terms. Uh, but when we either make a decision that we're going to ascend, when we make a decision we're going to check out, not engage, do anything like that, it is not fundamentally an individual affair. It's more like an earthquake. You can't have a personal earthquake. 
If the ground is shaking under your feet, it's going to shake under that of the people around you as well. And then maybe even the next town over, and the next town over. That's really big, maybe the whole state. But we're connected. Now there's something very terrifying about that for those who are living in sin, but there's also something very wonderful about it as God set things up. It wasn't, I didn't have to be that old before I realized that if my mom and dad said, hey, if you kids won't behave, we're not going to Disneyland. And then I misbehaved and we didn't go to Disneyland. Now, it wasn't my sister's fault. And I can sit there and say it's unfair. But in reality, all it was was simply me not wanting to work by the rules of the house. So what's going to happen today is a little bit like what would go on at Long Beach Poly High School during baseball practice. My coach, I used this when I coached. It was a great torture device. Uh, it was a 90-second drill. Those of you who've played for me have probably run the 90-second drill before, and it came from my evil coach, Kent Munger, who invented it as a torture device for his soccer players. He was a soccer coach. And he decided that Polly had this just huge prison yard style uh, baseball, that huge uh, chicken wire fences all the way around, enormous grass patch in the middle. Very hard. You had to run uh, almost sprint speed to make it around the periphery of that in about 90 seconds, okay? So the way he did this was he had everybody line up. He said 90 seconds, and he blew the whistle. Everybody takes off running, right? And for the first round, you're usually okay. But if nobody make, if one person out on the whole team doesn't make it across in 90 seconds, everybody has to run again. And so round one usually was okay. We had this one big dude named Brian Moak. If you're listening, Brian, sorry. Got to tell I speak truth. So Brian's a good dude. He's actually a Christian these days. You never would have known it back then. It's probably what people said about me too. But that's one of those things. God changes people's lives. Brian smoked about everything you can possibly smoke, okay? Cigarettes, marijuana, whatever. He was the only hitter we had. Like, like, only he could hit. We needed this dude. But he kept smoking. And so whenever we got up to do the 90-second drill, he was the problem. Great hitter. Couldn't breathe. So we would get up there, and we would run, and we would run, and Brian was always the problem. And by maybe the third round, he was done. He was spent. But does that mean that we all get to stop because he can't make it? No. That means you're going to run until he's throwing up over on the side. That's what it means. Because you're connected. The coach is trying to say, this is about everybody. Everybody. So later on in the New Testament, when Paul talks about us being a body, made up of many parts, and what happens to one part, if this one's mourning, we all mourn, if they're rejoicing, we're glad that we're connected. The Bible doesn't see us fundamentally as individuals. That's how we see ourselves. But that's not biblical. That's more American than biblical. They're not always separate, but in this case, it is. The Bible does see us as individuals, meaning God knows you. He knows the hair on your head. He knit you together in your mother's womb. But He also understands you as a part of His people. When you get to the book of Revelation later on in Scripture, there are two kinds of people. God's people and everybody else. Conspicuously absent are names of people in heaven. It's not, there's Bob, there's Zeke, there's Sally. God's people, everyone else. Occasionally you have some other teams, you know, here's the apostles or here's whatever. But it, there's not a lot of leaning on, oh boy, here's, it's so good to see Tommy here. 
And I just wonder if one of the reasons that sometimes churches struggle, or we struggle to understand what the point of church is, because we still think of ourselves as individuals rather than as a part of the people of God. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul writes, if one part suffers, he's talking about the body of Christ, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Well, this story today might add, if one part sins, all the parts are impacted. We cannot have a personal earthquake. In fact, in ancient Israel, Pilgrim groups that would come to, to worship would recite an entrance liturgy to make sure that they had consecrated themselves before they came in. I mean, think about this. What if there was like a, a sin scanner and we set it up right there at the entrances and when you walked in, it was like a metal detector at a, at a baseball game. And you, you go in and it beeps if you're living in sin. And maybe it prints out whatever the issue is to whoever's manning the machine. So I won't pick anybody out because this might be too awkward or something, but let's just say somebody walks in, maybe a first timer. Come in, hey, I'm going to go to church. All of a sudden they walk through the machine, boop, 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 boop. Print out comes out, oh, well, um, apparently we've got a problem with uh, pornography. You uh, yelled at your kids, you have a gambling problem, you cheated your boss, and whatever. Uh, and just the list goes on and on and on. So, how would you like to handle that before you come in? Um, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how many people you think would show up for church if, if we had something like that, right? I mean, do you understand, though, that God sees everything? That you're not fooling Him? That, that when you come in, the idea isn't that you become perfect before you enter. It's that as you exist as a part of God's people, you are doing everything in your power to be holy, to be sanctified, to be Someone who is obeying the will of God. So we don't do this thing like Achan does today, where he just kind of, you know, decides to hold a little bit back for himself. God views it as stealing, like he does in the book of Malachi when he's talking about tithing and people who don't tithe, like in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Very similar language. He views Achan, our bad guy for today, as somebody who stole from him. That stuff was set aside for my treasury, and you stole from me. Now Israel's coming off the battle of Jericho, highly victorious, now in the promised land. All the promises of God are starting to be consummated, and they're, they're excited. And hear this, Joshua 7.1 is on the screen. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. Achan was the son of Carmi, a descendant of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you took 7th or 8th grade English, they taught you about foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is, oh, you know, when the author kind of tilts their hand towards you to let you know something's going to happen. You know, uh, in TVs or movies, they do it with music. They don't need language. So, if you're... Uh, watching the movie Jaws. Yeah, you hear boom, 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 boom. You know what's happening, right? No words. You know what's happening. That means the shark is here. The speed lets you know how close the shark is. 
right? So I want you to picture this as a soundtrack. The end of chapter 6 of Joshua is Rocky. The end of Rocky. Right? Right? He's dancing around. His face is ha- half of it's hanging off of his head, and the other half is whatever he's screaming, Adrian, right? That's them. They made it, right? 7 1, literally. It's like a record scratches. And it's boom, boom. It goes from Rocky to that. The Bible has its music. There's foreshadowing everywhere. And from a biblical standpoint, when you read this, the anger of the Lord burned against the people. That's foreshadowing. Something is not going to go well for somebody. The conductor essentially has lifted their baton, and the anxious music has begun, and the tough things are now on the horizon. But remember, this is actual life. This is not make-believe. You're not watching a movie here. This happened. It still happens. Now, like so many people, Israel's on top of the mountain. You've got the victory music playing. The battle's been won. Everybody's ready to go. They're praising God, walking with God. They've taken the land. God is with them. But now this. Now the music has changed. And it's changed when a man by the name of Achan decides to hang on to some of the stuff that was set aside to go to the treasury of God. He takes it and he buries it under the floor of his tent. So Israel can't hear the music yet, but it has changed. They will hear it soon. Joshua, not knowing what Achan has done, prepares to march on the next city and take more ground. A little city called Ai. A-I. First, he sends out some scouts. Joshua's a big scout fan. Sends spies. He used to be a spy himself. Sent out spies, you may remember, to go to Jericho. Now he sends them out to Ai. He says, hey, go check things out. Let me know what it looks like out there for you. Now, I want you to listen to the tone of voice change. Listen to how they report back when the scouts come back on I. Joshua 7.3. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack I. Since there are so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. Now, they've come a long way from, you may remember when Joshua was a spy and he went to Jericho. You remember what 10 of the 12 said? We'll never beat them. It's impossible. The people are too large. And Joshua and Caleb come back with the report that says, yes, we can do this because the Lord is on our side. Or just before when they had sent other scouts out and Rahab is there, saves their life, but they can see, they come back and they say, hey, the Lord is with us. We can win this battle. But look at the the tone change. Just one city to the next one. They yawn, essentially. They yawn. They go, there's no need for everybody to go. We don't need more than two or 3,000 of us to go attack I. Since there's so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. Hey, kids, a trash man's coming. Can you go put the cans out? You know, there's only... Let her go do it. I don't, there's two. There's, there's only two cans. She can handle it. I really need to get up. And, you know, that's the attitude. It's cavalier. It's, it's prideful. Right? In the Bible, pride is prelude 
That cues the bad music in the Bible. Israel's gone from thinking that they shouldn't attack Jericho because the people in it were too big and too strong to attack to saying, you know what, don't bother everybody. We probably only need to send a few thousand people up there. Also, conspicuously absent here, is their conversation with God before the battle. You may remember, Joshua goes before, there's a conversation between Joshua and God. Not here. It's just kind of, how many people you say, eh, it's not too big. We'll take a few thousand, we'll get it done. Be back in time for supper. Something's changed. Some wrinkle has started to take place there inside. At Jericho, Joshua refuses to go forward until he has a word from the Lord before he goes into battle. Another thing to just notice I find curious is usually they don't number the number of soldiers. It's very rare that it actually happens. And usually if a number of soldiers is given, uh, it draws attention to what's going on. So Feridian, uh, Feridian, that's a, like my next sentence and that one put together. Gideon, Feridian, okay? Gideon, for instance, uh, in that they highlight how few troops he has so that when he wins the battle, everybody can stand back and go, hey, how great is God, right? Look at the victory he gave despite how few soldiers he's got. Well, it pulls it out here, even at the battle at Jericho, just the one right before. Hang with me here. At Jericho, Joshua waits on a word from the Lord, and you're told how many priests are there, but not soldiers. Okay. We're told about Gideon's very few soldiers because the moral message of the story is illustrated by how few soldiers Gideon takes with him. Here it's almost the opposite. The number of soldiers is listed so that we are going to know that they are not taking I very seriously. Underestimating the enemy can be a rather deadly mistake. No one will ever beat Mike Tyson. No one. Well, there's always a Buster Douglas to the Mike Tyson. There's always somebody to humble us when when we lose our way. The Bible says this about pride. Just a couple of verses. I'd, I'd encourage you to commit at least one of these two to memory. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Pride is prelude. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. In his book, How the Mighty Fall, Business author Jim Collins tells the story of a company that started in 1954 with a very simple mission statement. They wanted to make sure that people in rural parts of the country could buy things at an affordable price. Their chief rival was Kmart, and within a very short amount of time, they were able to beat Kmart to a pulp, and they just kept spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading until if you'd invested in their stock in one 15-year period, it gained 6,000%. You guys know the company I'm thinking of? Wrong. Not Walmart. Ames. Now you're going, who the heck is Ames? They were the people that were really running the table and didn't pay any attention to Walmart, who started at almost exactly the same time. Ames was up in the Northeast, the rural parts of the Northeast. Walmart started down in Hickville, you know? Yeah. Bunch of, bunch of hillbillies down there, you know, and they just didn't think they had to pay any attention to them. 
Well, Jim Collins in the book, How the Mighty Fall, which is really about companies at one point that were great, that, that in, in the chapter called The Hubris Born of Success, he talks about how there was a key moment. This Brazilian group of Brazilians came over and they wanted to study how to make a retail company thrive. They sent letters to 10 CEOs. Nine of the 10 said, sorry, don't have any time for you. One said yes. They go to the airport. He pulls up in his pickup truck on the runway with his dog in the cab, puts these Brazilians in his truck, takes them to his house, has a meal prepared for him, and while he's washing the dishes from the meal, he asks them a bunch of questions and spends time with them. Well, that was Sam Walton, right? Humble, willing. And you're going, well, who was the CEO of Ames? Nobody knows. Well, they know. Probably somebody knows. We don't know. Nobody cares now. Where's Ames? They're gone. You see, if you follow biblical history and you read Kings and Chronicles and all those books that seem like they're really you know, complicated, all they are are stories of groups of people and whether they follow God or not. And it's how God actually rises, raises them up and brings them down if they need to. The book of Kings often, just as they introduce the kings, they'll say, hey, and then so-and-so, son of so-and-so, became king. And then it either says that God was pleased with them or not. There was never a more wicked king than this guy, right? Boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. You know where the story is going. The way you begin to fail is to mishandle success. So as Collins writes, he goes, there's a, there's a difference when the rhetoric of success, meaning we're successful because we do these things, replaces, uh, um, uh, replaces penetrating understanding and insight like we're successful because we understand why we do these specific things and understand under what conditions they would no longer work. Right? So if you're an Israelite, what that means is there's one way of thinking is we're good at fighting battles, so we're going to go take I with a few thousand people because we're good fighters, right? Versus the reason that we're good fighters is because there is a God in heaven who actually empowers us to win the battle. And so we understand that at the moment we stop following God, we stop winning. Because he's actually the reason that we're successful. The hubris, born of success. Now, it's not in Joshua, but it's in the people. It's in the people. So we need to remember that even if the walls have fallen flat with a shout like they did for the Israelites at Jericho, we're still no less dependent on God than we were before. We need to remember who it is that gives us victory, and we need to continue to do the things that bring victory, which means listening and being faithful. To our Heavenly Father. Now, I don't believe that Joshua or the people even intentionally turned their back on God. Joshua and Israel do seem a bit more cavalier, though, by the time that you get to I than they did at Jericho. Maybe they got a little bit of the hubris born of success, which causes them to take the next battle lightly. And it is easy to lose our dependence on God when things are going well to when you think you look good enough in the mirror to stop working out, so to speak, in the spiritual realm. So they lose. They lose big. They go into battle and they are handily defeated by the smaller army of Ai. People die. And after fleeing the people of Ai, Israel is completely and utterly demoralized. And the hearts of the people, it says, melted and became as water. 
or as the New Living Translation puts it, the Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events and their courage melted away. Like the ice in your cup out in front of the Arts Center a second ago. The courage is melted. And so Joshua is disillusioned. How could this happen? The text says that he tears his clothes, the sign of mourning. He puts himself down on his face. And he's crying out to God, going, God, what are you doing? And in, in a scene very reminiscent of Moses and the Israelites, when, when he thinks that God's not going to part the Red Sea, God, why did you bring us here just to have us all killed? Did you just bring us here to be ruined in public? Why is this happening to us? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he pours out his pain and his disillusionment. He wants to know why God brought him here if he wasn't going to support them. You ever been there? Walk in the strength of the Lord. Feel like God delivered a big victory. Feel like things are cruising, man. Like your walk with God is going great. And then something just sideswipes you. And you find yourself then going back to God, going, God, I've, I've served you as best I could. I don't understand why this is happening. Well, God says to him this Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? <laughs> like, dude, come on. It's kind of what God says. Give me a break, you know? And then he says, Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they've not only stolen them, but they have lied about it. And they've hidden the things among their own belongings. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now, Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not good. I want to fix that one. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Get up. Command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove things from among you. See, we all get the part about how if God is with us, nobody can stand against us. But what about when God isn't with us? Then you can't win. That's the sad part. I like the first part of the sentence better. But what he's saying is you now have been set aside for destruction because you've stolen what was mine. I gave you the battle with all of the treasury that, that was there. And I asked you, as I gave you the cattle on a thousand hills. I gave you a promised land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, unlimited success. I asked you to take the stuff that was there because it's from wickedness. Bring it into the temple treasury and put it in there. That's all I asked. And he stole. You will not win another battle until that's fixed. So at this, I imagine Joshua looks up and goes, Huh? He seems to have no idea that this has happened. Back at the battle of Jericho, God had said, Take all the silver, the gold, the valuables, put it in the treasury of the Lord. He warned Israel not to keep any of the dedicated things. They were dedicated, not necessarily, they were dedicated for destruction. And he says, Now you've kept those things. Now you're set for destruction. They were dedicated to be taken into the treasury of God. 
that someone had hung on. So Joshua, in a very dramatic scene, says, everybody line up. Everybody, all the tribes, get it, every, assemble your, your, your tribes, all 12 of them. And he goes, God says, check out Judah. So he goes to Judah. And he says, now, check out this clan. So it's down to a clan. And he says, take a look at this family. Bring it back. And at that point, Achan goes, all right, it was me. I took this stuff. I took this, 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 and this. It's all buried under the floor of my tent. So people have died here. They lost a major thing, and even worse, it's a major, major affront to God. So Joshua identifies Achan, and he and his family are taken out and stoned to death. And then they pile a big pile of rocks on top of him that makes a big altar that people will remember. Isn't that uplifting? (laughs) But boy, is it important. Everybody in the entire nation, as far as we know, obeyed, except Achan. But Achan is a member of God's people. He'd done what God had forbidden, and in so doing, he brings the discipline of God on everybody else. So now relationship with God is out of tune. The battle's been lost. People have perished. God had punished the nation for Achan's sin because God doesn't see us as individuals. That's how we see ourselves. See, again, go back, go go to the book of Revelation sometime and look at how heaven is mentioned and who's there. It's all corporate. When Paul talks about the church, he talks about us being a body. Now, yes, we're individuals, parts, but we're part of something to the point that if you grieve, I grieve. And if you're happy, I'm happy. Now, the people in the East get this. Eastern Christians get this. This is not hard for them. But for us, it might as well be in Chinese. Like, what do you mean? No, it's all about my personal relationship with God. Why would you hold somebody accountable for what somebody else did? Because you're one. You're not an individual. You're not. Does God know you by name? Yes. Did he, does he know every hair on your head? Yes. But that's Paul's point. You are part of a body. When you become a Christian, you are now part of the body of Christ. So yes, you might be a finger, and everybody can notice you're a finger. But what he's saying is, you matter. And what you do in your life impacts everybody else around you. So that's like Brian Moak running the drill. Brian, why are you continuing to smoke? We are a team. We need you to run. We need you to run so that you can hit. And if you can't hit, we're going to lose another one nothing game. And I'm tired of losing one nothing games, 2-1 games, 3-2 games. We need you. We need you. You are not your own. You're not your own. Now, I wonder this. I wonder if any of us have given enough thought to how the small choices that we make impact the body. The decision to be very cavalier about serving. The decision to be very cavalier about attending. Giving. 
righteousness personally? I mean, is it, do we give it enough thought that God would be pleased? Doesn't mean everybody has to be perfect, no, but I do think you can overcook the whole, hey, we're just all a big mess and we all just come together and we're all messy together and that's what we do, we do mess. No. We are people who might be messy right now, but we believe by faith that the sin that we've committed is fully redeemed and can be fully redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it's not, we don't celebrate the fact that look what everybody has buried under the floor of their tent. Aren't we awesome? No, no. We are a people who are confessional and we're pursuing righteousness enough to open the floor of our tent and say, God, we don't want to dishonor you anymore. I don't want to spend another minute dishonoring you. Not just for my own sake because of what you've done for me in Christ, but I don't want to do it to my brothers and sisters because every moment I do that, I'm helping us lose a little bit. Does that make sense? Like, like when I, if I were to allow an ongoing sin in, in my life, I am not operating at full capacity. I'm just not. God isn't going to bless my life the way that He would otherwise. And so as long as I keep that stuff buried under the floor of the tent, I need to understand that that might impact the victory, the win column for us as a body of believers. Is it possible? Sure it is. You see it all over the place. The Israelites grumbled in the wilderness. Well, what about the 10 people who didn't grumble? Why didn't they get to go in and everybody else stay behind? Because that's not how God sees things. And Brian eventually quit smoking. And he eventually ran better. Which meant he hit better. And we played better. It doesn't mean, sisters and brothers, that God doesn't know us or cherish us personally. It just means that God understands us in the context of the whole as well. He understands us as a part of his army. And he's trying to help us understand through this story that our actions impact others. I don't just mean naturally or coincidentally. The Bible teaches that our sin may directly cause pain for others. It's not a pleasant thought, but man, is it important. It is so important. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, the Bible says. We're a country. We're a nation that God has built. People who are followers of Jesus. And we're accountable before God and His people for our efforts to live faithfully to God. And when we're not, people can get hurt. Can I get a, a show of hands? Uh, how, many, how many women do we have in the crowd? Raise your hand if you're female. Okay. Ra- keep your hand raised if you've had a baby before. Not bad. All right. Uh, I'm told it hurts. Is it painful? Anybody know? Oh, it can't be that painful. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> right? Uh, you're sitting there like, no, of course it hurts, right? It's, you know, now, why is it painful? Because of Adam and Eve, right? That's not fair. Hmm. Have you ever received anything positive because somebody else did something right? Of course we all have. So we look at it, and the mystery is not why we think that, you know. <laughs> I, 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 let me stop there for a second. I wonder sometimes the reason we downplay the impact of our sin on others is because we know 
that for many of us, the floor of our tents are absolutely bulging with buried treasure. Because then it's easier for me to just kind of come in and say, hey, you know, I got floor of my tent's full, floor of your tent's full. You know, we're all just got big bulging floors in our, in our tents. Good news is God's very gracious and forgiving and doesn't really care that much. There is nothing in the Bible anywhere that would lead a person to believe that. That God does not care. He unequivocally, unabashedly care. And it's sad because so many churches and people never reach their full redemptive potential because they just learn to get comfortable with sin in the camp. They just do. And so, as we said in previous weeks, every single battle, sisters and brothers, belongs to the Lord. Every one of them. And you can't muster enough cannons or guns or whatever to win that battle without the blessing of God. So stay blessable. Does it mean you have to be perfect? No. Here's what it means. You need to live a confessional life. It means that when I sin, I move toward the cross with it. Which is toward the grace and forgiveness of God and my cleansing by the blood of Jesus. See, when I read the stories of the Battle of Jericho, man, my heart absolutely leaps with joy of the thought of what God could do in our midst. I mean, if God could do that with them, what could He do with us? What could He do with me? Imagine if God let us win, kind of, so to speak, the, the spiritual battle of Escondido, the battle of San Diego, the battle of California, America, the world, for Christ. But then imagine that, that was a could have. But. They just couldn't get along. What a tragedy that would be. Keep remembering, by the way, this generation that's just entered the promised land entered because the previous one had to die off before God would let him enter. Because he wanted this to be a land that was different than the desert for those folks. And it can't be that way if you're bringing people who are terminally ill with griping and complaining and idolatry and all the other things that we saw the Israelites do in the wilderness. Here are a couple of prayers that I'd encourage you again to keep to memory. This is Habakkuk 3.2. Most of us have never read Habakkuk. It's actually got some great stuff in it. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works in this time of our deep need. Help us again as you did in years gone by, and in your, in your anger, remember your mercy. That's a great prayer to, to confess something. Here's a promise of Scripture. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth, 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God, God's looking for people who are willing to be committed to Him. He's looking for it. He's like, hey, I'm looking, and his eyes are just scanning the earth like a, like a metal detector over the sand. His eyes are going everywhere, and he's looking for somebody willing to be committed to him. He's looking for a country willing to be committed to him. He's looking for a church willing to be committed to him. And so the question isn't really, okay, well, what, what tools do we have? And what, that's all important in its own way, but that's, that's way down the line. The first question is, are you committed to him? Because if you're not, don't hold your breath. 
looking for battle victories. God's eyes are looking around for people who are committed to Him. I mean, what if God could do things like He did at Jericho in our time? He does. He wants to. God wants to bless us. He has a bias towards showing His favor on people. He wants to do amazing things with us. Like we just read, He's looking everywhere for people who are fully devoted to Him so that He can do great things on their behalf. So what do we do? Okay, I've got stuff buried under the floor of the tent. What should I do? I'm afraid that if I tell anybody about it, I might suffer Aiken's fate. Somebody might stone me to death out in front of the art center here or something. What should I do? You open the floor. You open the floor. You get it out of there. What we see Joshua and the Israelites do next is the right path for us in our time. It's to consecrate ourselves. If you're not consecrated right now, let's get there right now. There are lives in here that are held back simply because we've chosen to hold things back that belong to God. Or because holiness has ceased to matter in the age in which we're living because we've, we've kind of heretically morphed grace into this thing that you just, that's more like the hazy, vague, secular tolerance of the time we live in rather than something that's blood-bought and that was given to us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now God lets people keep everything. And they win because God is with them. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? How do I keep myself consecrated? The next section helps us along. Joshua 8, 30-35. I'm not going to read it, but I am going to just tell you what happens. He builds an altar and he writes the law on it. He reads the entire law to the entire nation. And it's a rededication to knowing God's will and obeying it. They begin with prayer and word. Prayer and word. And then for those of you who are like, I don't want to have my wagon hitched to the guy next to me. He's a, he's a loser. She's a loser. I'm perfect. <laughs> no, you are a mess. That's the part we got right. The problem is that it's okay for everybody to just go on living in, as a mess with no forward progress spiritually, not growing to honor the Lord, the Bible gives us an amazing truth. Check this out. Just like by one man's sin, Adam, going back to the childbirth thing, sin entered the world. Check this out. So, by one man, we're all forgiven. Whoa! I got some good news for you. Here it is. Romans 5, 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness for all who receive it. It will live in, or it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. See, you couldn't... Get righteous for everybody if you tried. So God steps in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and says, I'm going to do this for everybody. Now those who are part of the people of God, the Christians, right? The people who fall on the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, they have forgiveness. They don't just have sin, they have forgiveness. God's taken their sin and removed it. Through one man, through Jesus Christ, He 
he contrasts the acts and the outcomes of these two. Adam and Christ. Through Adam, Adam messed up and we all paid the bill. Guess what? Now, we couldn't pay the bill, so Jesus came and paid the bill. This is the gospel. So I don't have to sit there and go, oh no, I can't, I can't open the floor of the tent because if I do, that's going to let everybody know uh, that I'm a sinner. We all know you're a sinner. But that's the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So you open up the floor. You don't keep burying stuff under the floor of the tent that you've been living with and hauling around village to village. I mean, think about that. Every time they move, he's got to go dig all this stuff up, carry it with him, worry night and day that somebody's going to find out, then come back, dig another hole, put it back in the ground, cover it up, don't let anybody see, don't anybody tell anything. I mean, what, a, what an awful way to live, right? For what, an extra couple of shekels of silver? You're going to try and, and do that? Not understanding that Achan will never live to, to enjoy the money that he's stolen from God? What if he had, as soon as it happened, just gone and said, you know what? Instead, I'm going to take this and put it in the treasury. <laughs> I'm opening the floor. I'm opening up the floor. God doesn't want you to live that way. And so here's the invitation this morning. Open up the floor. I don't know what it is. Some of you may be going, I, have no, I don't know if i got anything in the floor or not. If you don't, you really don't. God knows what it is, and, and maybe you're at a point in your life where you really are walking in the way of the Lord very faithfully. But don't, 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 don't start digging holes. Don't start digging holes. And if you know that the floor of your tent is, is, is bulging, that as you walk around, you can feel it under your feet almost. There's this big mountain then for your sake and the sake of those around you, stop. Open the floor and receive the grace of God. Receive the grace of God, sister or brother. So it's time for us to open up the floor of our tent before the Lord. We're going to do it now as we gather around the Lord's table. Uh, those who are going to be passing the elements, go ahead and take your spots. As we do, we remember Jesus Christ, the one that he just spoke of. Romans chapter 5 says again, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because the one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. That's our Savior. So as we gather around and we remember him with bread and cup, representing the body and blood of Jesus, um, may we open the floor and receive the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for all that he did on our behalf. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for um, the grace that's able to cover sinners like us. And my prayer, Father, is that nobody in this room would look at it as a depressing reality that they're a sinner. You knew that. You know that. But that, Father, because of your grace and your abounding steadfast love, Father, that you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, made a way for all that sin to be gone. So we pray now, Father, that in his name, forgiveness and grace would pour down today. 
as we open the floor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.